Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Another nasty data surprise. First consumer sentiment plunges. Now New York area manufacturing slumps. Is the Fed about to make a major policy mistake by tapering soon? We talked to economist Dave Zervos about that. Plus the Taliban takeover. China seizing an opening in Afghanistan as the U.S.-backed government collapses. Just how big a setback is this for the U.S. on the world stage? And the $2 trillion crypto trade. We dissect Bitcoin's remarkable staying power and what the bulls are saying about a now. But we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu is back over here with the numbers, Dom. It feels so good, doesn't it, Kelly, to be back in our normal positions, almost like it's a little bit of normalcy back, but you can see a little bit of lighting work has been done. But yes, we are back in our home stations here, and this particular move for the markets overall has come off the session lows. You can see here the S&P is only off by about one quarter of one percent. The Dow is off just about flat now, 20 points, and the Nasdaq had been the real laggard, off by about one and a half percent and more earlier on in the session, now down only about three quarters of one percent. So a little bit of buying happening in some of those larger cap technology names. One place you are not seeing a lot of relative strength today is in the reopening trade. Those economically sensitive sectors that are banking on more of an economic recovery, especially in places like travel and leisure. Look at shares of booking holdings down 4% right now. Norwegian Cruise Line down 2%. Live Nation off the lows, off about one half of 1%. And the oil and gas trade, Occidental Petroleum, indicative there, off about 4%, as there are concerns about Chinese demand surfacing and whether or not the COVID Delta variant could play into an economic slowdown. But there are two places, yes, they are marginally negative right now, a little bit of a bid coming back to them intraday. But Apple and Microsoft, both of these stocks hit record intraday levels today. On a year-to-date basis, Microsoft has been a juggernaut. That's the orange line here. But these two Kelly stocks make up roughly 12% of the S&P 500. They make up roughly 21 to 22% of the NASDAQ 100, and they are both cruising higher. So maybe that mega cap technology trade is still intact. That's one of those things a lot of traders are watching to see if this has real staying power, the broadening effect, or if it really is just those big technology companies. Back over to you. I mean, two stocks or 12% of the S&P 500? Wow. Uh, Apple and Microsoft. Don, thanks. Well, the specter of a September taper announcement is looming over the markets. Our own Steve Leisman reporting it has growing consensus within the Fed, but is the recovery already starting to lose some momentum? Take the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index. The August reading posted one of its biggest drops on record. It fell all the way back to its lowest level since 2011. So again, worse than the levels we saw during the pandemic. Then just this morning, the New York Manufacturing Index, the Empire State, posted its third biggest monthly drop on record. My next guest says the Fed is playing a dangerous game with its, with its hawkish turn when the economic data reflects a scarred and fragile consumer. Joining me now is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist for Jefferies. Dave, I especially like having you on because it still feels like a contrarian voice. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you must get so much pushback to this point of view. People can say, how can you possibly think the economy isn't super strong right now? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at that survey like everybody else did. And, and, and the, the chief economist for the uh, University of Michigan's uh, Center for Consumer that, that does the survey, the, the Center for the Consumer, uh, he wrote a really bleak, uh, you know, assessment of what we saw in that, that survey. And 
You know, I'm just taking it for what it is. I'm watching the CPI data last week as well. We've got a 0.3 on the core after a 0.9, a 0.7, and a 0.9. So it does look like the transitory story has a lot more leg to stand on than the sort of, you know, the return to hyperinflation or 70s or whatever Zimbabwean rhetoric people want to throw at the U.S. these days. And, uh, and then, as you said, Kelly, the empire, uh, certainly not a good story today. So I, I don't understand the rush. I don't understand why there's a rush when we're still playing with this delta. We're hearing about Lambda. Mm-hmm. We're all kind of flying blind, blind. There's a lot of, you know, as Richard Curtin from Michigan wrote, um, you know, who's the chief economist there, wrote, I mean, there's a lot of emotional scarring in our consumer. And maybe the fragileness of that is is a little more... Uh, a little more there than people think it really is. Yeah, don't even Many- tell me that there's a lambda uh, issue now. Um, I'm, you know, and yeah, that, exactly. We don't want to talk. About but that I think goes back to to one of the big questions people have. So some took the drop in consumer sentiment, Dave, and said it's because prices are up. It's because no one can afford anything. It's because they're experiencing sticker shock. That's a different kind of issue than a demand-sided one. I mean, don't we have a consumer who's pretty flush with cash? We're still going through the child tax credit payments for the next few months. We, we do, and, and, and that would be a nice narrative, but it's just not the case when you dig into that data. When you dig into the data, what you see is actually that you know job and employment and income sentiment fell back during last month. And that's with 10 million job openings in Jolts. Hmm. So this is not a consumer that's feeling like this is a, you know, a wonderful time. It's a consumer that still has a lot of concerns. And look, a lot of those concerns, Kelly, may be other things. Uh, they may be the political divide that's in our country between Republicans and Democrats, people who you know, want to mask children and don't want to mask children in schools. We have a lot of division in our country, and that yeah. can feed through to consumer sentiment as well. So that said, I mean, it matters and it matters for, you know, when people decide to spend. And yes, we have cash. But look, GDP is still just up one tenth of one percent cumulatively since the end of 2019. Hmm. That is income. That is production. We are flat since the peak of Q4 of 2019 or up 10 basis points. So for all that we've done and all that we've added, we still, you know, normally we grow about 2%, right? That's the Fed's dot. We, we missed that for six, six quarters. Yeah. That's a lot. So in, in, to your point, in the sentiment survey, I think it showed that sentiment amongst Republicans was at a record low and sentiment amongst yeah. Democrats was holding up. So absolutely, there's a, a sort of a, a divide here that it's picking up on more so. But the, the other trends that you cite are worrisome as well. Let me ask you about something that could further cloud or confuse the picture because of Delta, because of the port closures and the supply chain issues that we're seeing fresh out of China right now, the whole price pressure situation is going to get really bad again. So I don't know exactly which ones and where, but we're about to head into a series of readings that once again show p- prices picking up, shortages happening. But I'm you know, going to feed this inflationary idea at the same time you're describing an economy that's sort of barely treading water. And, 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 and it's important, I think, to, to recognize, Kelly, that a lot of the inflation data that the Fed looks at are deflators. They're, they're, I don't want to get too wonky and economic-y on anybody, but they try to you know, counter for these substitution effects. So when something from China doesn't get here or is mm. going up in price, we substitute out of it and get something else. So the CPI is a fixed weight. Uh, 
uh, index, but the PC deflator and the GDP deflator are not. And the Fed looks at those. So we should be able to see the substitution effects, although they haven't been as readily apparent as many economists might have thought as of yet. I'm not so worried about a big price pickup. I really am not. This this whole price story was really in the cards. It was much bigger that what we got was much bigger than many people thought. But we knew the base effects were coming. We knew that there were supply chain problems. It was probably, you know, certainly, you know, more than a few tenths each month for the last but three or four months. Let me ask it a little bit before. differently, and you right. probably noticed this as well. So over the weekend, we had the 50th anniversary of Bretton Woods, a good reminder for everybody. to go. I mean, you've seen the charts making the rounds. You know, the U.S. gets off the gold standard, and the standard of living goes crazy, and home prices are, you know, experiencing these insane year-on-year gains, and people are seeing, you know, the price pressures that we talked about. So what do you say to those folks, David, who say there's no way that we're not experiencing I don't know how you want an affordability squeeze. And their concern is that if the Fed continues what it's doing now, it's going to get worse. Make the case for why continuing the purchases at this monthly pace will be better for Americans than tapering. Well, I, I think it, it's, it just comes down to the simple fact that we have a consumer which is far weaker than many people thought. Uh, that's coming out in the survey data. We have an economy that still needs a lot of additional stimulus to get back on a growth path, a pre-COVID growth path that's off by cumulatively 3% of GDP, which is an enormous number to to get back. And we still have legitimately 5.8 million jobs that are missing. But if you count the number of jobs that would have been created in a normal period over the last six quarters, we're missing closer to 9 million jobs, as Lael Brainerd put, put out there a week and a half ago or two weeks. So we've got missing jobs. We've got missing GDP. We've got kind of a fragile consumer that we're learning a little bit more about. What's the rush? Hmm. First and second of all, we've had 10 years of inflation missiles, 10 years, a decade. We've basically closed the gap on about five or six of those years, but we're still undershooting when looking at a look back that's any longer than five or five and a half years or so. So I, I don't know if the Fed's an average inflation targeter, What's the rush? And we just got really good news on the CPI that it's coming back down from these 0.9s and 0.7s mm. to 0.3 on the core. Let's watch it and wait and see. I mean, the, the, the story of the 70s, and we could talk about it forever, Kelly, and we don't have that time, <laughs> is a completely different story. It's a story about massive increases in the labor force. We had the baby boomers coming into the labor market, all wanting jobs, all wanting to buy stuff, all wanting to start households. We have very little labor force growth today. We have a demographic shortage, not a demographic glut. And every country that has a demographic shortage in the labor force, Japan, Germany, Scandinavia, Mm -hmm. they all have deflation and disinflation problems, as we've had for the last decade. This should be welcome news, what's happening on the inflation front. We should be celebrating it, not be scared. It's fascinating. Sort of turning the world on its head, as many are seeing and experiencing it, Dave. I really, really appreciate it. And it's amazing because we know the way that the Fed works. If they're just messaging that the taper is about to start, it's like turning a ship. You know, it's. If they reverse course, it's not going to be tomorrow. <laughs> no, it could be. It, 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 no, Kelly, it's really important. And look, we're in a politically sensitive point for the Fed. We're gonna, we have two vice chairs and a chair that are all coming up to be reposted effectively by February. We've got Randy Quarles in October. We've got Rich Clarida in January. And then we've got Jay Powell in, in February. The politics becomes very, very complicated. Hmm. And they have to talk a little tough. They have to sort of, you know, lay their groundwork for being a little more traditionally central banker tough 
to get through con- the congressional gauntlet. That's an, a difficult gauntlet to get through. And so the, the probability of a mistake and a messaging mistake and a testimony mistake really goes up a lot here. And that, to me, is the only real risk for the S&P as we have. I was going to say, when you get out of the spooze trade, then we know it's real. <laughs> David, thank you. I'm not so- out of that. All right. I'm loving that. He's hanging on to stocks. <laughs> Dave, thank you. We really appreciate all your time today. David Zervos of Jefferies. Before we go, I want to just quickly turn to Tesla, which is on pace for its worst day since June. This uh, shares are now down 5%. U.S. auto safety regulators have just opened a formal investigation into what sometimes is called autopilot, the company's driver assistance system. Phil Abo is here with the latest details. Phil, the shares keep moving lower throughout the day. Well, it's a significant investigation, Kelly. Now, who knows what ultimately will be determined by the regulators after they investigate these crashes. But here's what the investigation will be looking at. We're talking about 11 Tesla crashes where they crashed into emergency vehicles when they were in autopilot or in Uh, what they basically call their uh, driver cruise control system. 17 injuries, one fatality. The models uh, covering this probe, the S, the X, the Y, the three, basically all the Tesla models from 2014 through 2021. Altogether, there are 765,000 Tesla models that are covered by this investigation. The crashes that are in focus, this is one of them. This was in California in 2018. And another in Michigan, Uh, This was, uh, I think, last year. And then you've also got one that was in Connecticut. In each of these cases, what the investigators are going to be focused on is, did the drivers follow the system or was the system not functioning properly or were the drivers uh, falsely believing that the system was working? A lot of questions that need to be answered. NHTSA out with a statement today when we reached out to them saying, NHTSA reminds the public that no commercially available motor vehicles today are capable of driving themselves. Every available vehicle requires a human driver to be in control at all times, and all state laws hold human drivers responsible for operation of their vehicles. For Elon Musk, he's been defending autopilot for some time. There have been critics who have said, oh, look, this is a system that tells people they can fall asleep, take their hands off the wheel, do all kinds of other stuff, but pay attention. We should point out Tesla is explicit in its language to drivers saying you must be in control of the vehicle. You must pay attention. That said, a lot of people sit there and they say, well, look, the the system sort of suggests that you don't have to pay attention. So that's one of the questions that will have to be answered. By the way, the Model 3 and the Model Y, they now have cameras, Kelly, so that they can monitor the driver and then alert the driver if they are not paying attention or if they do something crazy or stupid where they're looking away for an extended period of time. Wow, because you have to wonder if Tesla customers at some point are, are customers who don't want that kind of surveillance. Uh, but for now, Phil, thank you for bringing us up to speed. We appreciate it. Phil LeBeau, as you mentioned, bet. Tesla shares down 5%. Coming up, is social media going to cause a generation of losses amongst the new retail traders? We'll look at the science of making money decisions while others are watching. Plus, President Biden is set to speak on Afghanistan at 3.45 p.m. Eastern today. Ahead of those remarks, we'll speak with Eurasia Group's Ian Bremmer about the geopolitical fallout for the U.S. as it battles with China for global influence. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise 
Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Welcome back to The Exchange. Social media may be fueling riskier behavior in the markets, especially for younger investors. Christina Partsinevelis is here with more. Christina. Well, we know there's a new era of meme investing upon us. The online world encouraging each other to hold investments regardless of their potential losses. And its public nature could be why younger retail investors are willing to take on that risk. So almost 6 in 10 Gen Z and millennial investors are members of investment communities like Reddit Online. And many, many are getting their financial advice online through YouTube and Reddit. And although apps like Robinhood and Twitter weren't the focus, a recent economic survey of 18 to 24-year-olds were found to be far more likely to choose riskier financial decisions when being watched by others. Today, investors are constantly sharing trades on Twitter and encouraging each other to stay long, like HODL. Uh, And so some can call it the mob mentality. But behavioral researchers say this risk could stem from the interaction of community and capital. It's not really so much about earning profit as much as, um, you know, showing your fellow community members, you know, this is what I got. This is I'm going to keep holding on for you guys, for the rest of my community. You saw a lot of that with, with, with GameStop. Social media and social interaction are a big part of why Robinhood and Reddit are so popular. For example, Wall Street bets on Reddit has skyrocketed to include 10.7 million people. Of course, some journalists on there as well. But although the propensity to gamble grows when everyone can see your stock pickings online, there is an upside, of course, finding others with similar interests and a rise in retail investor market participation, Kelly. Well, it's sort of the blessing and the curse. You, you, you've, got a, you've got a herd, but then you're, you know, you're encouraging each other. What about SPACs? Because I was just reading as well about the role that this particular kind of investment vehicle may be playing in leaving some newer, younger investors feeling burned. Yeah, so the, I guess the, the credit will go to institutional investor for this story. They just put out a piece about younger millennial investors who lost millions of dollars on Bill Ackman's SPAC. So think of a SPAC like a blank check that can uh, take a private company public by merging with it. Many had no idea what they were buying into, but that didn't stop them from rushing into this new financial vehicle. And you had celebrities like A-Rod, Sierra, they're all promoting their own SPACs. Thousands upon thousands of Reddit posts on SPACs. Bill Ackman fan pages. We now know the SEC killed that SPAC and those retail investors lost big. But the community spoke. Many wanted in on the action and increasing their risk by borrowing on margin or by buying cheap, risky call options. 
and that didn't always result in stellar returns. Even in, in this piece, one guy even attributed trading a- options to as addictive as cocaine. So <sighs> there is a lot of risk that is involved once you join a community like this, and it's just a matter of being aware of it. Absolutely. Christina, thanks. Appreciate it, Christina Parts and Evelis. Gen Z might be hunting for hot growth stocks these days, but my next guest says investors should be betting on value right now, and he's not concerned about the impact of the Fed's taper. Joining me is Dan Genter. He's the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of RNC Genter Capital Management. Dan, welcome. I don't know if you heard our, heard our earlier discussion with Dave Zervos, who's concerned about the economy's fragility, but um, you seem relatively unconcerned, right? You're going with the value trade that bets on growth, um, you know, GDP growth and a healthier expansion, right? Yeah, that's right, Kelly. I mean, I think you have to look at the fact that they're not going to shut this economy down again. I mean, you, with the Delta variant, various things that are going to maybe slow some of the uh, reentry and reentry trade and the restart, you know, they're not going to shut it down. And there's so much liquidity that's in this market right now. We have to realize that the, you know, the Fed has injected four trillion dollars over the last year and a half. Even if they do nothing else, there's going to be another trillion dollars of liquidity that's going to come into this market. So the fact is, if they actually even start to taper to some degree, that's a very positive sign. I mean, they're really telling us that they see that the economy is not going to take a major reversal. It's going to continue to grow. It may be at a slower rate, but that's going to be something that's going to show they're looking forward, that they're seeing that even some tapering, they're not taking any money off the table. They just would slightly slow some of their buying. And they would see that, you know, the economy is going to grow and that's going to be good for earnings. It's going to be mm-hmm. good for growth. That's all going to vie in favor of closing the gap once again between value and growth. Well, and maybe the way to play it, uh, you know, even your own strategy is more about stock picking than it is about trying to do these you know, factors or styles or value and growth. And, you know, for investors, it's sort of like you can be right for the right reasons or you can be right for any reasons. But, you know, often if you stick with you know, the right stocks, you can navigate through these times, whether they do pursue the taper, whether they have to throw that plan in, in the trash can. Tell me about Bristol-Myers, Chevron, General Electric even. You know, these are names you think investors can own no matter what the climate? Well, I think so. And I think that's where you're starting to see it in the value trade is that it really becomes, as you're alluding to it, it's picking individual stocks as this market really starts to, you know, probably start to mitigate with regards to its overall growth. P.E. expansion is tough. It's one of the things we like about Bristol-Myers. I mean, it is, it is clearly the best value that's in the healthcare space. It's trading at, at about an 8 P.E. You get a strong almost 3% dividend while you wait. You know, we think it's radically undervalued from the standpoint that people are worried about patent expiration on the back end, which is true, and it's a problem. But what they're radically underestimating is that the eight new drugs they have coming online are going to generate, we feel, 20 to $25 billion in new business. Hmm. And, that, and that's about double what the street is expecting. I mean, so that's strong. And, and when you look at, again, you look at a, a Chevron. I mean, this is a company that has one of the purest plays to the commodity, which continues to advance. I mean, driving miles are back up to what they were pre-pandemic. Airlines off a little bit, but only marginally. And you're, you're looking at a stock that has the best leverage and some of the highest margins in the industry and the largest acreage that has no royalties in the Permian Basin. You get 5.2% while you wait at about a 14 PE. So these are companies that in their own right, standalone is very strong values yeah. you know, for people to get some nice appreciation. You say even GE, you like what Culp is doing there, and very few large-cap companies say are poised to see such strong profit growth in the next few years. Dan, again, strategies uh, for, I guess we could say, hopefully any environment the market's about to bring us. We really appreciate it today. Thank you.
You bet. Dan Gender with RNZ Gender Capital Management. Coming up, retail earnings are the best they've ever been. But are we in for a nasty holiday surprise the way COVID is now shutting parts of China down again? We'll explore that. Also, Oli shares are hanging on to a small gain. Actually, they've just gone negative on this session. They had mixed quarterly results, but they're forecasting a pretty big revenue surge for the year. We'll talk about what's the latest at the Alt Milk Company in just a moment. Stay with us. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets remain relatively unflummoxed by all the major events of the day, whether it's geopolitical in Afghanistan, the taper talk uh, that we've been hearing from the Fed as it re- uh, relates to reporting from our Steve Leesman over at The Wall Street Journal. But take a look. In a week after they only moved 44 points for the week, we're in a pretty placid situation with the Dow down 10, the S&P down 8, and more notably the Nasdaq down two-thirds of 1% today. So it's down 100 points. That's where the major action is. In terms of the movers, the material stocks are lower with Freeport, McMoran, New Core, Albemarle, and CF Industries all leading the declines. You know, there is some speculation that what's happened in Afghanistan could hurt the Biden administration's agenda on passing infrastructure. Again, these, though, are a lot of materials names that are keyed to the global economy as well. So a couple of different things to keep in mind. The semiconductor stocks aren't doing much better. Even NVIDIA down AMD. Xilinx is one of the biggest la- uh, laggards. AMD is down about 3%. And the Crane Shares China Internet ETF, that KWEB, that's down another 4% today. JD.com, Baidu, Alibaba, all down 3 to 5%. All of this on some concerns about the data coming out of China. China's online shopping growth slowed to just 4% in July. CNBC.com crunched the numbers and found that last month's figure is far below the average of 21% growth for Chinese e-commerce for the past five years. For more on what that means for China and the world's economy, you can head on over to CNBC.com. Let's get to Rahel Solomon, though, for a CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Satellite images show the thousands of people at the Kabul airport seeking to escape Afghanistan. U.S. and international forces are now working to clear the airport so that evacuation flights can resume. In Haiti, survivors near the epicenter of that massive earthquake are finding shelter in makeshift tents on a soccer field. Rescue efforts continue around the region as the death toll remains slightly less than 1,300. Tropical storm Grace also expected to hit Haiti tonight and bring more destruction with up to 15 inches of rain in some areas. And on the news, desperate efforts to find survivors in Haiti and getting ready for another possible natural disaster. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. 22 attorneys general are forming a coalition to oppose Georgia's new voting law. They say that the law imposes voting restrictions that discriminate against millions of people especially people of color. And in New York City, proof of vaccination will be needed to dine indoors, go to a gym, or attend an indoor performance. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing that the rules will go into effect tomorrow, but that enforcement won't actually begin 
until September 13th. But Kelly, as you know, it's um, creating quite a bit of confusion and perhaps a bit of controversy oh, yeah. with some of the restaurant owners. For sure. Rahel, thank you. We appreciate it. Rahel Solomon. Still ahead, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson just announcing his intention to hold a virtual G7 meeting on Afghanistan in the coming days. With the U.S. facing harsh criticism over their ongoing troop withdrawal, the potential fallout for America on a global scale is next here on The Exchange. Take a look at stocks which are about to turn positive. The Dow's only down four points. Similar for the S&P down six, the Nasdaq down 94. So again, even though we saw some big losses this morning with futures down as much as 170 points, uh, we have recouped that and we'll keep an eye on it as we still have to navigate, of course, the Biden press conference around 3.45 p.m. So that will begin before the market close. There's an intraday chart of the Dow. You can see a steady march upward. Cash-rich consumers, strong demand, low inventory. Sounds great for retailers, but it could all be derailed just ahead of the key back-to-school season and what about the holidays? We're going to tell you what to listen for in the earnings reports that are coming out this week next, right here on The Exchange. Welcome back. President Biden is set to speak about two hours from now about the deadly crisis in Afghanistan. These will be his first public remarks in about a week. The decision to withdraw U.S. troops sending the country into freefall as the Taliban has swiftly gained power and control of the government. They captured the capital city of Kabul yesterday. We've all been seeing these dramatic images of locals chasing down departing planes. Critics warn that with this geopolitical blunder, American adversaries like Russia and China stand to benefit, with China already saying it's looking forward to, quote-unquote, friendship with the Taliban, though stopping short of recognizing them yet as the country's legitimate leaders. Joining me now to discuss the potential global fallout is Ian Bremmer. He's president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Ian, it's good to have you. And Boris Johnson just announcing he wants uh, the G7 to meet virtually in the coming days. But what, what are they possibly going to do? Well, uh, it's a little late for that. I mean, part of the issue here is so little coordination between the United States and the allies that we've been fighting side by side with for 20 years now. Um, the decision to withdraw was made unilaterally by the Biden administration. The timeline, as well as you know, issues of coordinating humanitarian aid, refugees, dealing with the planning for the evacuation. I mean, actually, the United States ambassador, acting ambassador, fled the country this weekend. The British ambassador is still there, mm. um, trying to help Brits get out. So, I mean, just the complete absence of coordination. And the United States, under the Trump administration, there was a lot of the U.S. is unilateral, it's America first. The Europeans really didn't expect that under Biden. And, and they're, they're quite angry about it. You've heard the U.K. Uh, defense minister came out yesterday with some really choice words uh, in, uh, in how they felt like there was not coordination with the Americans here. So why? You know, there's so many different questions asked. I just want to throw in here as well uh, this news that... We have the publisher of The Washington Post pleading with the White House to help remove more than 200 journalists and related people out of the Kabul airport in Afghanistan and back home to the U.S. And actually, the head of the Afghanistan Central Bank has been on Twitter sharing his own story where he was caught totally off guard by the developments, tried to make it out in an aircraft himself, basically couldn't. I mean, it's and this is all as they're watching the elites in the country and the politicians flee on private jets. So what, okay, let's roll back the clock five days. What should have happened? Well, uh, I have to say, first of all, I understand and am basically aligned with the decision to end the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. Uh, it, that was a popular decision. The Democrats, Republicans, independents all support it. But how one goes about doing that is a very different story. And, you know, five days ago, 
the Biden administration still believed that the Afghan Defense Forces, that the United States has spent some $88 billion training over the last 20 years, would be able to continue to uh, fight against the Taliban while the Americans were withdrawing, not just withdrawing our citizens, but also withdrawing those that have been supported uh, the United States over the course of the past decade plus, and and that the Afghan, uh, the Taliban would have targeted. Um, though that was completely wrong. Um, and not only was the intelligence failure there, but also there was really no planning for what if we're wrong. Uh, I mean, this was, you know, a combination of bad intelligence and hope. Uh, and and you, you've watched that fall apart. And whether you're a Biden supporter or a Biden detractor, it's impossible uh, not to recognize uh, the failure of execution on foreign policy that is truly staggering. I mean, beyond that of anything I've seen from a U.S. administration since the beginning of this war. Although there, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around, you know, if we're if we're kind of rewinding the clock. And, you know, to think back to the fact that the original Taliban regime fell just a couple of months after the 9-11 attacks. Afghanistan was holding democratic elections by 2004, and the situation was stabilizing sort of within the ensuing decade. There wasn't any major attack like on 9-11, and now we will all be witness to what happens after this turn of events. So let me just ask you what you expect from the president this afternoon. He's speaking in about two hours' time. Should this be a primetime message? Uh, it is, it's good that he's doing this today. Uh, earlier today, they were talking about in the coming days, and I, I think that they were losing control of messaging really, really fast. Biden not being in the White House, talking on national security by Zoom and not having his key advisors there with him personally it is not the right message. So it's good that he's doing that. I mean, the basics of the message will be pretty clear in the sense that Biden has argued, and I think, I think correctly, um, that the status quo he was handed when he took over as president was not sustainable. Uh, there was already a significant drawdown of U.S. troops, and the Taliban had gotten significantly stronger. And the assessment internally by the Biden administration was that you couldn't maintain that status quo, you would, you would lose to the Taliban over the course of his administration. So you had to either increase forces, which no one wanted to do in the Biden administration, would have been quite unpopular in the U.S., um, or you needed to leave. Um, so I think he'll make that point. He'll make that point strongly. And you saw that in his statement over yeah. the weekend. But he has to take responsibility for the failures on the ground, the coordination failure, the intelligence failure, the planning failure, the communications failure. And, and we need to see how much of that he does and, and, and what the leadership of the United States will look like going forward. This is well, a true crisis for him right now. You know, you say it's a true crisis, but the interesting thing about this is that as much of a debacle as it is, those who still supported the U.S. leaving Afghanistan are often pointing to this turn of events as evidence as to why there was no sustainable way for the U.S. presence to stay. So in some curious way, it's almost as if, you know, the rest of the world is seizing this opportunity to kind of point to, you know, America's, you know, inability to lead on this key issue, while the Americans themselves, you know, by and large, leaving Afghanistan up until a couple days ago remained a very popular policy. And I think still is, by the way. I want to be clear that I think that the impact this is going to have for U.S. relations with allies is greater than it will have for Biden domestically right now. 
Having said that, let's be clear that the situation on the ground in Afghanistan is very fluid, and there are a lot of American citizens that are still there. And so, I mean, if you ask me, if they're able to get through this with no Americans getting killed on the ground, um, then I think you still get your $3.5 trillion in infrastructure done, and I don't think a lot of people are voting on the basis of Afghanistan mm-hmm. policy come midterms or come 2024 elections. On the other hand, if this becomes a hostage situation, um, I mean, if there's firefights and there are American journalists, other citizens on the ground that are actually captured by the Taliban, killed by the Taliban, this becomes an ongoing headline for weeks or months, this destroys Biden's presidency. And I don't think there's a 50-50 chance of that happening, but it's not 1%. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's a real possibility. And, and that never should have been plausible. So I, I just want to be clear that talking to you right now, yeah. I wish I could respond as confidently to your question as I would like to, as you would like me to. Well, no, and it's a, a good point that this is not history right now. We're all waiting to see for the next several days what happens. And, you know, the reporting is that top-level U.S. officials have already met face-to-face with the Taliban, more or less pleading with them to let journalists and uh, others out. And, of course, the Chinese are already seizing on this, uh, you know, as mockery. Ian, thanks. We appreciate it. We'll leave it right there. As I mentioned, we're going to hear from the president himself very soon. Ian Bremmer with the Eurasia Group on the latest in Afghanistan. Still ahead, the crypto market topped $2 trillion for the first time in nearly three months as Bitcoin rallies. We're going to get a check on the health of the whole space in just a moment. The Dow also briefly turned positive. It's amazing for all that we're discussing. Markets shaking it off. We've got Merck, United Health, Home Depot all trying to help move to the upside. And remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange Podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's a very busy week for retail earnings. As you can see, there, Target, Walmart, Lowe's and Home Depot, just some of the names we'll be hearing from. And while they've been enjoying a pretty golden moment, there's still a lot of questions over the rest of the year now. Bob Bassani joins us with more. Hi, Bob. Hello, Kelly. In theory, this is a golden moment for the retailers. Consider this. The consumer is flush with cash. Higher costs are being mostly passed on. Demand is high. Supply is low. Inventories are low. So there's very little on sale. The Delta variant is the problem here. The Delta variant is the wild card. Retailers are holding on to gains made earlier in the year on the narrative that the economy is going to keep opening up. But the Delta variant means consumer behavior could change very quickly. The key test right now is back to school. That's what everyone's watching. Strong back to school showing usually is good for retailers and it usually implies good holiday sales. Apparel and department stores have held on to gains from earlier in the year. A lot of this is sideways, but the variant has some cast. Uh, some doubt on the whole theory. So, for example, is everybody refreshing their wardrobe for back to work? Is everybody going back to social activities? Delta has made everyone a little less certain about their work plans and their social plans alike. Here's the bottom line. There was a lot of optimism in the first quarter from the CEOs in the retail space. Now, I'm sure that's going to continue, but the retail CEO comments will likely be tempered with a lot more cautious tone as companies tied to the reopening, like the clothing stores, the cosmetic stores, the department stores, start hedging their bets around the Delta variant. It's going to be very interesting to hear what they have to say. Kelly, back to you. Yes, we look forward to it, Bob. Thank you. 
Moving on, the total value of the crypto market topping $2 trillion for the first time in nearly three months as Bitcoin continues its rally. Since dipping below 30K on July 20th, it has surged more than 50 percent, the top 48,000 for the first time since May this weekend before pulling back somewhat. But it's still well off its all-time high of around 64000 and change. So what's driving these latest moves? Here to discuss, Michael Casey is Chief Content Officer at Coindesk. Michael, it's great to see you. So Hi, let me just start with the obvious question, which even a lot of the specialists, let's call them, in the Bitcoin community, there's some high-profile bears and people who have been saying this, you know, this is a sort of dead cat bounce to borrow the, the parlance. Why, what, what do you think accounts for the rebound that we're experiencing? I think a whole host of factors. Um, You know, it is actually something of a return to the narrative that we were seeing earlier in the year. I don't think we're seeing anywhere near the same level of institutional interest that we were talking about back then. I think last time you had me on the show, actually. But we are seeing evidence that bigger players are entering the market, right? And this is, I think, you know, in some respects, also driven around the broad narrative that there is a lot of uncertainty in the world, the direction of, you were just talking with Babasani about, like, you know, what is... What is the outlook for the Delta variant? These things, I think, feed back into this ongoing concern of uncertainty around monetary policy, the expectation that the Fed's going to keep going. All of that is supportive of, of Bitcoin and for various reasons. And for those reasons as well, I think family offices and, and a, a whole host of other institutions that are interested, we're seeing bigger transactions come through, which is a sign that these bigger players are there. And then there's just like, you know, a lot of the what we call FUD in this industry, the, the, the fear and uncertainty, uh, <laughs> is, is actually being, you know, mitigated a little bit. Like, you know, the, the Chinese uh, news, the concerns around, you know, Elon Musk bad-mouthing it, all these things, they've died down a bit. It's a bit of, you know, removing some of those head, headwinds and, you know, it's a t- chance for people to, 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 to continue to accumulate. So also we've had this infrastructure bill with this amendment that would possibly classify, you know, basically coders as brokers or what have you for crypto purposes. Mm-hmm. Is that language still in there? Is it, do you think it's going to get passed at this point? Are it, people it, coming to know, terms with it? I just read a column last week about this saying like uh, one of these rare occasions when a loss is actually a victory for the crypto industry, because, you know, you know, the story, one single Senator, an 87 year old man with an interest in something, defense building blocked a reasonable amendment to that law that would have removed some of that ambiguity and really ultimately unenforceable language that's in there in a way that really underscored, you know, 99 senators were on board with this. Like, you know, the 1% is the, the image that, that held us back here. Um, you know, it was a show of support, I think, for how much clout the crypto industry now is, how relevant it now is in this space. And so I think that was important. And as it goes to the House, yes, there'll be yet another battle through this. But look, this language, I think, will ultimately have to get corrected. Everybody seems to understand and recognize that it was flawed. And I think the fact that that recognition is there is probably the most important element of this. And it's yet another thing, I think, that helps to underscore a positive factor in this. I want to say one other thing as well I forgot to mention. You know, Ethereum is, you know, Ether has done uh, really quite well. Um, And there's been this significant London hard fork upgrade to their protocol, which means there's now, uh, you know, in the parlance of what they use in this space, they're burning tokens as part of the the actual issuance function and and how uh, miners are rewarded. And that 
actually creates a scarcity function which starts to look a little bit more like Bitcoin. There is now you know, a supply function that looks more deflationary. All that supports crypto. The same time as supports uh, Ether, the same time that, you know, NFTs and DeFi, you know, the, the, the sort of surge of activity in NFTs yeah. is just driving more and more activity through those protocols. No, it, it is. And we talked a little bit about the lull in NFT volumes earlier, kind of in late spring, but those numbers have really picked up again. So, you know, I kind of, I, I sort of see what's happening with the Bitcoin space, you know, Ethereum, NFTs, that's all fine. What the heck is Litecoin? You've got 20 seconds, Mike. I mean, riddle me that one. Litecoin. Litecoin, well, Litecoin was always considered the silver to Bitcoin's gold. It was like basically (laughs) a hard fork of Bitcoin and you could have it as an alternative. It had a few different functionalities that made it seem a little bit more appealing. At the end of the day, though, it really is... It's just another coin. Like, I mean, it doesn't have... (laughs) I don't think it has the same... Quite the same community as Dogecoin around it, but it's, it's a Bitcoin hard fork. And here's, and here's my point. So, you know, you've got we actually had Jack Mallers on last week from Strike and he's throwing some shade at Coindesk for having, you know, for example, Dogecoin on its platform. You know, the industry is maturing, let's call it. And there are some that are emerging as these legitimate, you know, stamped with institutional investors backing and that kind of thing. And then others that it feels it like could fall by the wayside. Do you, do you think that's right or no? Do you think that the rising tide will continue to lift all boats? Oh, there's no doubt that there'll have to be, you know, some consolidation here. I mean, I, I mean, we're still way too many. We, we're constantly barraged uh, as as people writing about this space with crazy pitches all the time. You know, bots that are pitching this or that, you know, new coin with some sort of offensive name in it and so forth. But I look, I, I think the Dogecoin phenomenon is worth looking at for what it represents in terms of uh, the community aspect of it. Clearly, if you are a believer that there's only going to be one dominant cryptocurrency, you're going to laugh Dogecoin out of here. But we're interested in, you know, covering the phenomenon. We are journalists. We cover whatever is going on. And, you know, Dogecoin is an interesting phenomenon for what it says about, you know, the the, the market, the social media Mm -hmm. phenomenon behind it and all of that. And money is about community ultimately, right? It's about, you know, how people come together and, you know, agree on the same medium of exchange. And if, if there is a mechanism by which you build community around it, it's, it's certainly worth reporting on. I don't know that I would sort of recommend anybody necessarily buy it, but I'm put your life savings recommendations <laughs> yeah. anyway. So, well, anyway. Mallers was talking uh, about Coinbase, just to clarify. Um, but it is a great yeah. point, Mike, whether it's Dogecoin, Litecoin, or all the West. We appreciate checking in with you. Thank you, sir. It's good to see you. <laughs> You're most welcome, Kelly. Thanks Michael for Casey, me. my former colleague Bye. at the Wall Street Journal, uh, now of Coindesk. This earnings season has given oat milk-loving Starbucks customers two reasons to celebrate after they experienced shortages over the past few months. The latest on Oatly is right after this. Welcome back. Shares of Oatly are higher today. They've paired those gains. I think they were negative a moment ago. There we see it. A dip happened in just the past hour. They're down four-tenths of one percent now. All this after posting a bigger-than-expected second-quarter loss and missing on revenue. But Kate Rogers joins me with more on what's behind these moves. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, this morning's move higher seemed to be all about capacity. The company said it was able to overcome both COVID and manufacturing-related headwinds during the quarter in its first report since going public. Its supply chain, though, was impacted earlier in the quarter for major partners like Starbucks in recent months. The company says June and July, though, were its strongest consecutive production months in its history. Oatly announced this morning also an increase in its oat-based capacity in the Americas, rather, at its Utah facility to support an increase in consumer 
consumer demand. It'll also open a facility in Fort Worth, Texas in 2023. This combined with its EMEA manufacturing facility and two in Asia will create a more than 200% increase in its production output by the end of 2022 compared to the end of 2020. The company also noting inflation, saying that it has experienced some freight cost increases due to the pandemic, and it also added its localization of production to come may help to curb some of those costs. It's also guiding for full-year revenue to exceed $690 million. That is slightly higher than anticipated. Oatly, of course, facing accusations last month from short seller Spruce Point Capital that it misled investors in its prospectus and argues that the company will never achieve profitability. It also accused Oatly of greenwashing or overstating its green credentials. Oatly rejected these accusations at the time and then again underscored that stance on the call today. Kelly, back over to you. And Spruce Point also says Sunopta is now going to vie with it for, you know, oat milk creation. I think Oatly shares were down on that last week. Yeah, Kelly, that's right. And Oatly CEO today underscored that Oatly is still the exclusive partner for Starbucks. I think that other company was just making up for some of the shortfall in the, the period there. But that moving ahead, they are the exclusive partner once again for yeah, Starbucks. Yeah, I think it was Sunopta. Kate, thank you. We appreciate it. Kate Rogers, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.